0: We're starting at verse one. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstained from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or, and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Therefore, whoever discreet, oh, excuse me, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Tony, if you'll come up and we'll pray with you. Father, uh, again we come this morning, um, wishing to be faithful um, to you and to your word, Lord. I pray for my brother Tony as he is faithful in in um, in proclaiming um, the 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 truths that you have given us. Um, Lord, give us um, ears to hear. Give him um, you, your power and clarity, um, and let us all draw closer to you in your word, Lord. We love you and we pray in your Son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thanks, brother. So I'll level with you. We've got a lot to cover today. And so by way of introduction, I'm going to simply say this. Oftentimes, whenever sexual immorality as a topic comes up in the church, it is the church or individuals in the church shaking its fist or their fists at people outside of the church. You get what I'm saying? So if you, if you read a Christian article on sexual immorality, very, very often it's the church shaking its fist at the culture that it finds itself in. Today, that is not what we're doing at all. And so as we talk about these topics, if there's the temptation that comes upon you to think about people outside, to think about someone else. I want you to stop yourself and remember that this passage, that this week, we're talking about us. This is about me. This is about where I am. And so with that, let's read again the first verse of chapter 4. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the lord jesus and so these two verses start us out in a new section of the book as we went through chapters 1 2 and 3 we saw paul and his companions um, kind of reminding the thessalonians about their relationship where it came from, what it was based on, the type of lives that Paul and his companions modeled. And so the the, the first part of this book has been mainly a, kind of a history of Paul in this church. Um, we've learned quite a bit out of that. But as we move into this next part, um, we find Paul transitioning into practical matters of daily life. How should you, as Christians, behave towards one another? and towards the world and so we see Paul reminding them that they would already received teaching that they were already putting that teaching into practice um, but that they needed to continue to grow they needed to do the things that he had taught more and more as he said these things he also invoked the name of Christ And so one thing I want us to remember as we go through this, and it'll be shored up again in the last verse, is this. The advice and the instruction and the commands that Paul gives to the people in this church, and by extension to us, are not just from him, right? It's not just good ideas that he came up with. In verse 1, he says, I urge this in the Lord Jesus. For the sake of the common Savior we have, by the power that that Savior has given me, I urge you to do these things. And then he also says the instruction that he has given, he gave through the Lord Jesus. Um, That means basically by the authority of. As I give you this instruction... I give it to you by the authority of the Lord that you proclaim. And so he introduces this transition in the book, and he launches directly into the teaching. Um, The first subject that he turns to in the next chapters is the subject of sexuality. Let's read verse 3, at least the first part of it. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's interesting that as he starts, he doesn't start by just listing commands immediately. He starts again by pointing out that this whole topic, that this whole conversation is the will of God and that it's for their sanctification. That sexuality is the first subject that comes up to him should tell us something. Um, First, it is very, very likely that the report that Timothy, Paul's servant, brought to him that we read about earlier, included some information about the Thessalonians in regards to their sexual behavior. And so for Paul to pick this as his first thing to talk about, we can safely assume, it is an assumption, but we can safely assume that the the Thessalonians had some issues with their sexual behavior. And we also know that this, this subject in general looms large in his mind as something that's important that the Thessalonians know. Again, he says, it's the will of God. Have you ever been curious about God's will in your life? Anybody ever have that subject? You come up on a big decision: Where should I move? Who should I date? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? What job should I apply for? Should I have kids right now? Should I wait? You know? Um, Have you ever wondered what the will of the Lord is? Oftentimes if you come to me as your pastor and you say, Pastor, Tony, friend, fellow brother, what should I do? I'm going to look at you and a lot of the times tell you, I don't know. You know, what's God's will for my life? Should I take this job? I, I don't know. Like there's some tension here where we will pray and say, God, speak to me. Tell me something. And, and it's hard, right, to discern the will of God in fill in the blank. This is one of those verses where we can look at it. And it says, this for you is the will of God. No questions, no like praying for the Lord to give you a vision or a dream, you're not like trying to read tea leaves, reading your horoscope, there's no guesswork here. This is the will of God. You can be sure of that. The will of God for your life is this, sanctification. Just by show of hands, how many of you have like heard this word sanctification before? Give me, a, give me a show of hands. So a lot of you have heard this word before. It's a churchy word that we throw around. Brother, how's your sanctification going? You know? We'll talk to one another, right? Well, it, it, Rich is like, if you come and say that to me, you're a lame, lame person. But I mean, this is a churchy word, right? Sanctification. This is what sanctification is. It is the Christian's growth in holiness. You understand? So the process of sanctification for your life, if you hear that word in the church, it is the process where you go from less holy, like sinful, uh, sinfully minded, that you have sinful habits, and over time, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word and self-control, you go from... Being less holy to more and more and more holy. Until the point, whenever you stand before Christ and you're entirely sanctified, completely sanctified, and you stand before him and you look just like Jesus. You're truly holy, not just aspiring to be holy. That's what sanctification is. And your sanctification, your growth in holiness, is one of the few things that I can look you in the eye and say... This is the direct, revealed will of God. To become more like Christ. And if you're a Christian, the process of sanctification, hear me on this, is the most important process in your life. It's the most important thing that you'll do. That you grow in holiness is more important than who you marry. It's more important than where you go to school. It's more important than your job. It's more important than, you know, what diet you're on, how you raise your children. That you are growing in holiness is core. It affects everything in your life. And it's the will of God for you. And in the context of this passage, um, Paul connects sanctification directly to your sexuality. Now hear me on this. Sanctification is not just about sexual behavior. Your life and growth and holiness touches far more than just what you think about sex, the type of sex you have, the type of sex you want to have or imagine having. Sanctification is about more than just sexual behavior, but sexuality is is a core experience to humanity. Do you understand what I mean by that whenever I say it's a core experience? I'm not saying that sexuality should define us as if my identity is somehow rooted in my idea of sexuality. Um, That is a very common thing in the world today where someone will identify themselves based on their sexuality. It's incredibly, incredibly common among homosexuals. You ask them who they are and they will say, I'm gay. So, in, in a sense, part of their life, or for some, the totality of their life, is identified in their sexuality. Your sexuality does not define you. Your personhood is not determined by your sexuality. But at the same time, sexuality is a core experience in, huma- in humanity. Um, so that if you turn over to the very first book of the Bible... In the very first chapter, right after God creates man in his own image, the first recorded words that he speaks to that man and his wife are this. Be fruitful and multiply. Guess what he's talking about there. Like, How does that happen? Think about that for a second. The first words recorded in the Bible of God towards man, involves sex. Now, don't run with that into weird places, but take that to mean that sexuality is core to the human experience. And so our sanctification, our growth in holiness, is strongly connected to how we learn to interact with our own sexuality and the sexuality of others. I'm going to say that again. Our growth in holiness, my growth in holiness, your growth in holiness, your sanctification is strongly connected to how you learn to interact with your own sexuality and to that of others. We can see this in three statements that Paul makes on the subject. So we find this first, like this first part of this verse three that says, For the will of God is this, your sanctification. And if you have an English Bible, you'll see a colon and three statements that start with that. So that's kind of the primary statement, and then he, he, he kind of puts three other statements underneath it. So this is it. This is the statements he makes. For, the will, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, the first one uh, in verse 3b, which should come up on the screen, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So here's the blanket term. We already knew this was coming, but we're going to look at it for just a moment. First off, we find Paul saying you need to abstain from sexual immorality. Um, The word abstain basically means that you keep your distance, that you put it away from you. It assumes that sexual immorality, in order to abstain from it, that it has to be common and available. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't say to you, abstain from walking on the moon. Right, Because you're never going to walk on the moon. That would be ridiculous. I wouldn't tell you, urge you, to abstain from something that was uh, unlikely. Whenever Paul says abstain from sexual immorality, he's assuming that it's right there. That each one of the Thessalonians, as they heard this command, would immediately know in their mind what he was talking about for them. Opportunities for sexual immorality are everywhere. They drip from every doorframe in our country. And Paul says, abstain. Keep your distance. Put it away. Maybe this raises the question for you. you're like, well, Tony, I understand what abstinence is. Like, I understand what abstain means. Like, you're not teaching me anything. Um, But what exactly is it we're talking about when we talk about sexual immorality? Who gets to define that? You know, who says what sexual immorality is? What does that mean? I think we have to acknowledge that depending on who you talk to, the understanding of sexual immorality um, can be very, very different among people, Right? If we looked at the culture in Thessalonica in the first century when this letter was written, the general idea of sexual immorality would have been mostly limited to adultery uh, with a married woman. That means like having sex with a married woman if you're not her husband. And I, I, I'm specific in that because it was commonly acceptable for men to go sleep with, with prostitutes. Um, and that wasn't necessarily considered immoral in all circumstances. But the thing that everyone agreed on was, more or less, was that if a woman is married, if you have sex with her, you've committed adultery, she's committed adultery. And, and that was basically it. Right? That was the one agreed upon, don't touch another man's wife. Um, so you can obviously see the imbalance in there. <laughs> Women... Uh, are held to a different standard than men in that. Um, that was more or less the, the only common uh, form of sexual immorality at the time in Thessalonica. In our modern culture, it's a lot different, right? <laughs> it's a lot different. Um, sexual activity without consent is pretty much the only mark of what's considered sexually immoral in our culture today. So, do you understand what I mean by that? You can have as much sex as often as you want with whoever you want, as long as you are both able to give your consent. So, uh, man and a man, man and a woman, as long as they're adults of an age where they can legally give consent, it's considered okay. You know, if one person's drunk, that takes away consent, and so that's not okay. But as long as those two, you know, two or however many, it doesn't. it's not limited to two individuals, as long as there's consent, it's okay. That's That's more or less the definition in our culture. And I want us to know that God's definition of sexual immorality, if we talk about what God says, this is sexually immoral, that it stands against both of those cultures. It stands against the culture... Of first-century Thessalonica and it also stands against our modern culture we've not evolved away from this and so sexual immorality must be defined if we're to, if we're to know what Paul's talking about by the Word of God what is it Paul would have taught the Thessalonians was sexual immorality um, we can address this in two ways. I'm just going to acknowledge. There are two ways you can kind of talk about this. The first way I could talk about this is I could list a bunch of things you're not supposed to do according to the Bible. Right? We could open up Deuteronomy, and we could open up Leviticus, and we could open up Romans, and we could... <laughs> I'm going to stop there because there are a lot... Um, we could open up to numerous passages and I could give you a list of things that Godly, God clearly says are immoral and wrong and will destroy your soul if you're one who's seeking to come closer to him. Um, but there's a problem with doing that. One is that it's already 1054 and uh, it would take a, lot, a long time to do that. And, and number two is that people are really creative and so if you give people a list of things they're not supposed to do they will find the loopholes okay you're right you know and, and if you if you wonder if that's true uh, a certain public figure not too long ago stood up and asked the question what is is right like I didn't have sexual relations with that person according to my definition, right? People are endlessly creative. And so if I give you a list of don'ts, what I'm afraid will happen is that you'll take that list of don'ts and you'll check it every so often and be like, yep, haven't done any of those while your heart is just as corrupt as anybody else. Like the list doesn't actually help you. So I'm not going to do the list today. Instead, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a brief look at Ephesians, and then we're going to describe what sexuality is meant to be. Like, what is your sexuality supposed to look like, expressed, if you're going to express it? Um, And then once you know what that picture is, and you examine yourself, and you examine your heart and your desires and your thoughts, you just ask the question does this look like the picture? Because if it doesn't, then you have to really, really wonder hard whether it's good for your soul. Does that make sense? So let's read Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. Don't worry, we're not going to look at every word of every verse. We're just kind of getting a, a high-level look at this passage. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32 says this, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis there. This is a prof- this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. This is um, the basic truth that if you were here when we preached through the Book of Ephes- Ephesians, remember us talking about. The basic truth is this: that that sexuality, that human sexuality. Um, with all its alluring like passions and pleasures and goodnesses and joy, is meant to help us understand the intended relationship between God and His people, between Christ and His church. The marriage relationship, which, according to God's definition, is inherently sexual, is meant to show um, the watching world and ourselves. Some, some image, some even weak image of what the closeness and the intimacy between God and his people is supposed to look like. So if you think of sex at its most beautiful, it is closeness and not distance, right? Sexuality is by its nature spiritual. The marriage relationship by its very nature is spiritual the picture that we get here in Ephesians and in the passages that it quotes is this one man and one woman in the covenant relationship of marriage That means they've made promises to one another both of them being self-giving right so we don't just stop at one man one woman married No, God defines that marriage as something, right? It's supposed to be self-giving where both parties seek the good of the other. What is sexuality meant to be? It's meant to be a beautiful relationship between one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship where both people are sacrificing themselves, giving themselves, laying themselves down for the good and benefit of the other person. There should be, in the sex relationship, if that's our definition, mutual pleasure. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to be crass here, right? But if we take the Ephesians chapter 5 idea of marriage seriously where each person sacrifices for the other. That means the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife needs to be mutually beneficial and pleasurable. And so guys, you have a responsibility. I'm talking about married husbands, not the rest of you, not guys in general. Married husbands, you have a responsibility in the bedroom to love your wife. And not just take from her. I say it mainly to you because that's generally the way it goes. It can be much easier to please a guy sexually than a woman. There needs to be mutual pleasure. The sexual relationship within marriage needs to show intimacy. Like it needs to to show real intimacy between the two people, and it also needs to strengthen that intimacy. Do you get what I'm saying? And then the last thing we need to talk about in that is that it should be fruitful. Um, So for the last however many years, um, the, the country, depending on who you talk to, the world, depending on who you talk to, has been either blessed or cursed with modern contraceptives birth control um, and I'm not gonna tell you using birth control is a sin I would be I would be a hypocrite to say that um, and I don't believe it but it what birth control can do its existence can do is it can put us as, as individuals in a mindset where sex is only associated with the pleasurable benefits we get out of it does that make sense um, without birth control being a thing in the world, every time you have sex, um, there's the possibility of a pregnancy. And so that brings a certain amount of weight and consequence to the activity. Does that make sense? And so it was super common. Um, it was super common in days gone past, whenever a pregnancy would happen outside of a wedlock, for the both the people involved to feel like social and like just kind of spiritual pressure to get married and to like have a certain type of home. And in today's day and age, because of that invention, the weight and consequence with which the world in general looks at sex um, has kind of been lightened. Does that make sense? I am not going to stand up here and tell you that every time you have sex, there has to be the possibility of a birth. Though, for those who have been on birth control and still have kids, you'll know that, like, it's not always foolproof. Um, But I will say this. Like, as you as a husband and a wife, like, discuss and communicate about your sexual relationship, the children need to be in there somewhere. If you're not talking about that, thinking about that, praying about that, then you might be using sex for something other than what it was intended. Or at least keeping something out that God intended. So if that's the picture, one man, one woman in a covenant relationship, both self giving, anything outside of that defined biblically would be sexual immorality. Here's the second statement that each, this is in verse 4, should come up on the screen. So God's will for us is sanctification, colon, here's the next statement, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Some of you, if you have a different translation other than the ESV or the NIV, um, might have a completely different sentence there in verse 4. If you're looking at a King James or a NASB or something like that, it'll, it'll say each one of you needs to know how to possess his own vessel. Can you see why the translation might be different in some of them? Because if I say, you, brother, you need to possess your own vessel, um, you would look at me and just kind of say, what? Right? Um, the truth is, is this is, this is probably the hardest uh, verse in this section to translate because Paul's using an idiom. You guys know what an idiom is? It's like an expression that I use that doesn't necessarily mean exactly what it says. So if I go up, you know, after Ryan gives a lesson and I pat him on the back and I say, Ryan, you really knocked it out of the park. He knows exactly what I mean, right? It means he did a good job. But imagine being someone who doesn't speak English, knows nothing about baseball, overhears me saying that to Ryan. Hey, Ryan, you really knocked it out of the park. They're wondering what it is that he knocked out, what park that it is that I'm talking about. Like, it just completely breaks down. We don't understand what it is. And so whenever we see the term here, vessel, know that Paul's using it as an idiom. The Thessalonians would have known what he was talking about. For us, we have to dig a little bit. What does it mean? Um, Some early translators thought that it could mean um, kind of have your own spouse. Basically, men, get a wife. And a lot of early translations will more or less say that. Um, acquire a wife. So how do, you, how do you have a good sexual like ethic? Well, get a wife. And then focus all your sexual energies on her, rather than on whatever else you might focus it on. Um, to possess your own spouse is kind of the idea. Um, I would say that this is a, kind of a perfectly biblical idea. Um, 1 Corinthians makes it clear that marriage is a good thing and marriage because you desire sex is a good thing and that within the marriage relationship each partner has a responsibility towards the other to provide sexually and so it's not untrue that having a healthy sexual relationship with your spouse will help your uh, relationship Um, it will help your ability to uh, you know to avoid sexual immorality um, but it's not really a universal solution. Not everybody can just go out and like just grab a wife. And so I'm picturing like the younger men among the Thessalonians, and so Paul's talking to them, saying, "You don't want to be sexually immoral? Just go grab a wife." To which the young men would say, "How? Like by force? What are you? You know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, how's that work? It's not universally, uh, not a universal solution." And the second problem is, is that it pictures spouses kind of as objects is to be used, you know possess you know, to you know to have possess your own spouse um, everywhere we see the idea of wives and husbands providing for each other sexually, it's always in the context of self giving like you give yourself, not that the other person takes. does that make sense and it's also not the best fit for the comparison that comes in Verse 5, and so um, the newer translation that you'll see in the ESV and the NIV is probably a better translation, um, arguably a better translation, that you would know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. So we see the concept of self-control. If you want to grow in holiness and in sanctification, you must grow in self-control. It says know how. It doesn't just say be self-controlled. It says know how to control your body. And so if you you come up to me and say, Pastor Tony, I'm struggling, I'm looking at stuff online I ought not look at, and I just can't help myself. I just don't have the self-control. So you tell me to be self-controlled, but I just don't have it. I've had that conversation on numerous, numerous occasions. Know this, it's going to take some thought. You don't just need to have self-control as if magically, but you need to know how to control your body. That means you may need to study or learn or think about ways to help you in the meantime to build your self-control. There may need to be tactics that you take. Um, If you have a problem looking at websites you ought not look at late at night, maybe you shouldn't be on the computer late at night just as a practical thought. Things that will, you can build into your life to help you build self-control. Um, I think the word possess is kinda, hap- is kinda helpful here. Um, the image we get of that is if, if the vessel is your body and you're possessing your own body, the image is, is that you become fully in control of what you do. Um, sometimes we talk about possession, like a demon possessed me, right? What we mean by that is like I lost all control and some outside force was controlling my, you know, my body. Like Paul teaches here, no, you need to possess yourself. You need to be in full control of what you do. And your self-control needs to be focused on holiness and honor, not on passion and lust. Um, he talks about the Gentiles who do not know God in this passage. Don't be like them. Paul is mainly talking to Gentiles who used to not know God. And so there's an acknowledgement here that he's speaking to a people that have been and are continuing to be in ways sexually immoral and he's calling out to them. Don't be like this anymore. Let's look at the third statement. So God's will for you is sanctification colon In verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So it may not be obvious, um, but your sexual sin, like my sexual sin, the sexual sin of any Christian, affects the whole church, not just us. Um, We can look at sexual sin, and we can think, oh, this doesn't really hurt anybody, it's just hurting me. But it doesn't. It affects the whole church. In the case of adultery, that's kind of obvious. Like, if you commit adultery with someone's spouse, you're hurting that spouse, right? You're hurting the person you committed adultery with, and you're also hurting her husband, right? Or reverse the genders, if we're looking at the other direction. You're hurting the other spouse. Um, in fornication, um, you're hurting yourself, and you're also hurting the, the one you're engaged with. Um, I, I draw my, my memory of most of this is like out of youth group, like the church I was in. And the guys and the girls would start to meet up and start to pair off, right? You know, you're in a young college group or something, or even older singles. And even among Christians, there is the desire to be close, sexually close with someone else. And I've seen brothers and sisters devastate each other's spiritual lives because they couldn't control themselves. You harm not just yourself, but the one that you engage in it with. Even pornography, which you might think this is a totally a solo act, this is just me with a glowing screen or an old magazine or something. You may say, well, how's that hurt the church? How's that hurt others? First off, I wanna say like every time you look at porn, you are contributing to the demand for pornography that exists in the world. There are women around the world that are taken advantage of, men that are taken advantage of, young people and old people that are, have their lives controlled um, because there's demand for pornography. If you didn't look at it, if other people didn't look at it, the demand wouldn't be there and the videos wouldn't be made and the people that get sucked into that awful hell that is sex trafficking wouldn't be there. So don't think for a second that whenever you look at a video of someone on the other side of the world that somehow your sin only affects you in that moment because you've made yourself a party to somebody else's sin. And you say, well, that, maybe that affects other people outside the church, but what about those in? How is this wrong, my brother? The more you look at porn, the more you allow yourself to sexually fantasize, the more you focus on sexual immorality in your life, it will change and alter the way that you view the people around you. To the point that you won't be able to go to a missional community, a small group, and sit with your brothers and sisters and not think about other people sexually. Like, I have heard those confessions from people in chorus that I have to struggle. Like, pornography does that to you. Those of you who have been there know that it does it to you. Those that haven't know that it can. When we involve ourselves in sexual immorality, what it does is it takes us out of the game. So, if we as a church are supposed to be working together to build up one another in holiness, in goodness, if we're supposed to be serving the community and showing them Christ, whenever we participate in sexual immorality, what happens is that it wounds our soul to the point that we're not able to be who our brothers and sisters need us to be. We can't even pray the way we ought to pray. So, if I come to you and say, Brother, pray for me, I'm struggling. In, you know, I don't know I'm going to lose my job. And you're all caught up in sexual immorality. How, how well do you think you're going to be able to actually pray for me? Sexual immorality is not just killing people outside of the church. It's killing those inside and it's killing the church. And then briefly it mentions that the Lord is an avenger. In verse 6, Paul says that he warned them that God wouldn't take it lightly. As we come up on the close, I'm going to read a couple more verses. The first one is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In these verses, Paul is writing to a different church, the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, don't be fooled. If you live in an ungodly manner, if your life is full of ungodliness, you're not going to stand before Jesus with a smile on your face. You're not going to be welcomed into the kingdom. If you live an ongoing life Of unrighteousness. You're not going to be welcomed in. It mentions sexual immorality three times, really, in the verse, in different forms. The Lord is an avenger. You won't get away with your sin if you persist in the sin. God will forgive you if you come to him. He'll cleanse you if you come to him. If you repent, he'll welcome you with open arms and your sin will be done away with. But if you persist in it, judgment will come. Paul closes this section in verse 7. Let's read it. He says, For God has not called us for impurity but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul again looked at the Thessalonians and said, this is not just my opinion. I'm not just some guy trying to ruin your fun. If you ignore this urging to flee from sexual immorality, you're not just ignoring Paul, you're not just ignoring me as a preacher, you're ignoring God. The one who, if you say you're you're a Christian, is the one who gave you the Holy Spirit. Another verse out of First Corinthians chapter six: Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our sanctification is strongly connected to how we learn to interact with our own sexuality and the sexuality of others. What we do with our urges and our desires and our lusts will have a direct impact on how godly we become. just a short word of application are you caught up in sexual immorality like I don't know this stuff often is secret right and so as we look around the room there may be we we may all be glowing examples of purity before the Lord and we we may actually in our hearts be like black holes of sin in this area and I don't know I don't know I'm not you I don't know your heart like I know my heart But I ask you this, as you examine yourself, could you look at this and say, yeah, I'm caught up in it. Like, I'm I'm in trouble. The first step towards sanctification, the first step towards becoming holy is repentance. Like, repent to God. Cry out to him. Say, Lord, you know who I am and how I think and what I do. And I need you. Like, repent to him. Repent towards those you've wronged. Like, wives, repent to your husbands. Husbands, repent to your wives if it's appropriate. To old girlfriends or boyfriends. You've truly wronged one another if you've been involved in this, and that requires repentance. The second thing that I would say to you is become known. Like this secret stuff that poisons our heart, get it to where it's not secret anymore. Repent to a brother and a sister in Christ. Be involved in a fight club. It's a weird term for the small groups that we have, the even smaller than MCs where we do accountability and we look through the scripture and we fight sin together. If you're not in a fight club, I urge you to be in one, not because of your sexual sin necessarily. You may say, well, Tony, I'm doing just fine. But the people you might be in the group with might not be. And they might need you as a brother to help them, as a sister to help them become known. Um... And if you're just paralyzed, like what I would say is come talk to me in private. Um, Catch me, shoot me a message. Um, I'd be happy to talk to you, ladies. um, I'd be happy to talk to you with my wife or just my wife would be happy to talk to you, someone else in the church. Like, we will get you connected to someone who can help. Like, just let me know. Know that, like, there's no judgment in me here. Like, I just want us to be healthy and to do better and to grow. What if you're not personally caught up in it? Praise God. If, if you look at yourself and you say, I'm doing great here, praise Jesus. And I mean that seriously. Praise God. But be aware. Watch yourself. This is an ongoing thing that goes through life, and you may struggle differently in different phases. So be aware. Watch yourself. And then also, I beg you of this. If you're one who has been given victory in this area, pray pray, pray for others because you're in a place to pray that those people might not be in for themselves and we believe that that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective and so I beg you on behalf of your brothers and sisters pray for this church. Pray for your brothers and sisters and help as your relationships allow. Parents, your kids are going to need help in this and if you ignore it, they'll be on their own as they try to figure out how to deal with this. Like, I know it's awkward. My kids are eight, and six, and I've already tried to have like age-appropriate conversations about this subject with them, and it, it really is not fun at all. Um, have that talk. Walk with your kids as they age and get older to help them think through this subject so that they don't end up alone and feeling shame and feeling like there's no hope or no way out or no way to defeat the struggle. Spouses, help your, help your husband, help your wife. They need you here. They need you here. Not just in the physical way, but in the emotional way. Like, they need to know that you're with them. Friends, roommates, like... Set up accountability systems in your own homes. Be there for one another. Think of any practical way you can help your brother or sister in this and help them. Friends, this is God's will. There are few things I can say that for, but this is God's will that we would be sanctified. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Heavenly um, As we come to this subject, I know that many times we come to it with hopelessness. For those that are struggling, um, I know that hopelessness can be paralyzing. Father, there are people in this room that likely want to know you, that want to follow you, that want to grow in you, but have been completely just brought low by their sexual sin. Father, I ask that you would show them your grace that you're the Redeemer, not just for the holy, but for the people that have sinned in every way. That your gospel is big enough to forgive them the first time, and the second time, and the 77th time. Help them to know that they can come to you wherever they are, in whatever state they're in. Repent and be brought near. Lord, I ask that you would grow us all in holiness, that you would sanctify us, that you would make us look more like your son, that you would protect us from being hypocrites who shake our fists at those on the outside while we do the same things here on the inside. Holy Spirit, we ask that you wouldn't forsake us, that you would draw near to us, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would empower us to be self-controlled, and that you would guide us again and again to your word that transforms us. Lord, again, we thank you, we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.